Amen. Good morning. Um, so just to, I love this church, and I love that, I'll do a formal welcome here in a second, but I'll send there at the back. I don't know if y'all know this or not, but we got babies everywhere. And so there might not have been a lot of blessings from COVID, <laughs> but we got seven in our church total. We had two in the first service. And we got a bunch in here right now, and uh, four, four babies um, right now. And so, man, I'm just so thankful uh, that six babies who've been born in the last eight months uh, were at church today. And so, if they have to walk around and rock them, they know there's freedom to do any of that. If they run around, y'all just help out, okay? That's what we do here, right? And, uh, but hey, welcome to Lindsay and Lisa. If it's your first time worshiping with us, I don't normally talk about the babies at the beginning. Normally I talk about you and I say that you're welcome here and we're so pumped to have you. We're so pumped, in fact, that we bought you something. And so at Next Steps in the lobby of our church, um, we have t-shirts, free t-shirts that we want to give you today. All we ask is that you give us just a little bit of basic information using the card in front of you and fill that up. Run into Next Steps on your way out today, right next to the beautiful Valentine's Day um, photo booth that Miss Bethany uh, put together for us, and Clay. Um, and uh, so you can take your picture out there today, but also pick up uh, your first-time guest gift, and they'll give you a little bit of information about our church so that you can make a well-informed decision. Um, just one more ad, okay? Uh, so this weekend was our marriage conference, and so we've been talking about that for uh, six weeks or so now, and so we had nine couples from Lindsay Lane East go to our uh, marriage conference that we do with all three campuses. And, man, we had a blast. This is probably my favorite of the three that I've been to here at East. And uh, just so you know, you have smart people with you right now. We went to an escape room on Friday night, and we got out. Like, we did it. Huh? Uh, yeah, so we did too. So both teams, we had to split up in two teams. Both teams got out under an hour and then one of the teams even set a record for the room. Like we got our, we got to give them a team name and everything. Our name's on the wall as the leader in that room. Really, really cool. So uh, Lindsay Lane East, uh, the glory of God was spread to Franklin <laughs> this weekend. And hopefully the record will stand for quite a while. Um, but anyway, we did have a blast this weekend. But also uh, Jay and Tanya Struther were the speakers and got to learn a lot from them uh, in their marriage this week. And so it was really, really cool. But um, hopefully you'll... Uh, hear some more about that. Just talk to somebody that went and ask them what they learned. But um, today we're in week two of this series that we're calling Return. Uh, we're calling it Return because we're looking at these moments uh, in the in the biblical text in which God's people are called to return to God. There's a lot of them, um, but there's hot spots of when they occur uh, a lot, and that's in the prophets. And so this uh, in this series, this four weeks, just through February, we're looking at what are actually called the minor prophets. They're called minor not because they're not important, but because they're short. Um, as Miss Kathy uh, said, and I don't see her, but Miss Kathy Gifford, who works our Next Steps desk, she said every, her parents, she grew up in a, a very Christian home, and they asked her to read a book of the Bible, you know, like once a month or something. She always chose the minor prophets because <laughs> there's like three chapters in it. Um, but So you got to be smart there. But So we're studying through these the minor prophets. We're just looking at the first four, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. And so today we're looking at Joel. So we're going to be in the book of Joel. Um, if you need to use your concordance to find it, I mean, your, uh, your table of contents at the beginning of your Bible to find it, there's no judgment, okay? Because those little books can be hard to find. But 
Um, last week we looked at the book of Hosea, and what we're seeing in every one of these is that the context is totally different. The group of people, the, the time and the place of which the prophet is speaking is totally different. However, each one of them has the same call to the people of God, return to God. And every one of them are calling God's people to return because of an attribute of God. And so last week, what we saw, the book of Hosea, the Hosea's call was for God's people to return to God because he is a God who pursues. And we saw that last week. And God continues to pursue us today. And it, it should drive our, uh, in the midst of our boneheaded decisions and ignoring God's will, he is ever in pursuit of us. And, and we should repent of our sins and turn back to him. Today, we're looking at Joel. And in 14 years of teaching and preaching ministry, I've never preached on the book of Joel, but I've been missing it. Like I've been, uh, this is a good one. And so like, I wish I had preached on this a long time ago as I was studying this week and the last few weeks, really, uh, it's been really cool. And I think there's a good message for us today. It's so good. And uh, the message of, of Joel is this, return to the Lord for he is a God who restores. And so that's what we're going to look at. Um, I'm going to read the first 14 verses just so that you can get a grasp. It's a lot. Okay. Um, it's literally like four pages in my notes. Um, but I think it's important to read this because it sets the stage for what Joel is speaking into. So y'all uh, listen to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Uh, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children the next generation. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. The young, uh, what the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. What the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Well, all you wine drinkers, because of that sweet wine, for it has been taken from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion and has fangs of a lioness. It has devastated my grapevine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off its bark and thrown it away. Its branches have turned white. Grieve like a young woman dressed in sackcloth, mourning for her husband of her youth. Grain and drink offerings have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests who are priests, ministers of the Lord mourn. The fields are destroyed, the land grieves, indeed the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, and the fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers, well, you wine dresser, vine dressers, over the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished, the grapevine is dried up, the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the date palm, and the apple, all the trees of the orchard have withered. Indeed, human joy has dried up. Dress in sackcloth and lament, you priests. Well, you ministers of the altar, come and spend the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God, because grain and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Announce a sacred feast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the residents of the land at the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you. Um, God, for even the just almost depressing parts of the Bible. God, what I just read is just there's bad news after bad news after bad news. But God, as we're going to see today, there's just there's beauty in the midst of this. God, there's a message in the midst of this. And so God, today, um, as we always pray, God, 
I ask that you teach us to know you today and that you'll be with us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So Joel um, is in some ways a pretty strange book. Um, but I believe that the, the best way to understand the overall message is to recognize that, that Joel is conveying three key principles uh, to the lives of the Israelites during his day. The Israelites were God's people um, in the Old Testament, and so uh, Joel is conveying a message to them. The first thing we see is this. Number one, we are all deserving of God's judgment. Now, if you, read, if, if you were following along with me and didn't sleep through me reading the first 14 verses, what you see is that, like, that's a pretty sorry time <laughs> to be living in Israel. There's a lot going on. And we're going to talk about what some of those things were. But God's judgment is a consistent theme through the Bible. When you read the Bible from beginning to end, what you're going to see is that God's judgment is, a, is, is this consistent theme. And the prophets especially used a language um, that you're going to, have to be familiar with. Uh, maybe, um, a term called the day of the Lord. Okay, so we've got to do some work on the front end here. So if uh, the day of the Lord is a, is a term in which the, the prophets used to speak of a day of God's judgment. For many Christians today, we think of the day of the Lord as a day in the future in which Christ will return and, and things will be brought to an end, especially if you grew up reading Left Behind. That's what it was, the Left Behind books, right? Um, or you grew up just studying Revelation a lot. There's this idea that a day of the Lord is in the future, some cataclysmic future event that will play a part in the end of the world and the final return of Christ. However, what you what happens when you read the Bible is you recognize that the day of the Lord actually doesn't often speak of that time, but speaks of other times. Um, uh, it's it's a, the day of the Lord is a much more loaded word. You know what I mean by loaded when I say it's a loaded term. Um, it means that there's a lot there's a lot of inner workings through the old uh, through the Old Testament. In fact, the word the phrase the day of the Lord appears 18 times in the Old Testament, which is not a whole lot. I'll give you that. However, oftentimes it's it's the authors that are writing prefer a shorter term like the day or the that day or this day on the day coming or something like that. This shorter version, the day, appears 208 times in the Old Testament. Okay. See, now we're talking about pretty pretty significant things. Now we're talking about something pretty significant. And so all through the Old Testament, what we're seeing is that there is a day of the Lord. And so if you were to read all 226 times that the day of the Lord is referenced, what you would find is that most of those don't point forward to a day, the day of Christ's return. But they, point, they seem to be pointing to some things that have already happened. Uh, it seems like the day of the Lord could refer to actually several different events in Israel's history. I'll give you a few. Um, there are times in the text where it seems to be referring to the fall of Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, which fell in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. Sometimes it seems to be talking about the fall of Jerusalem, and the southern, which was the capital of the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came in and, and carried them out. Sometimes it seems to be referring to the return to the land that happens in, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We read about that where they come back and they rebuild the city and rebuild the temple, which happened around 516 B.C. Other times it seems to be talking about a coming Messiah, um, which, you know, Jesus' birth was around 5 B.C. And Jesus' death, sometimes it's in reference to his death, uh, which happened at 30-ish years later. Or sometimes it seems to be talking about the second fall of Jerusalem that happened in 70 A.D. Do you see how this can be confusing? 
That was my goal was to confuse you. Thank you. <laughs> because this, the day of the Lord can be a reference to a lot of things. And so when we come to the text, as I've done over the last few weeks in preparation for all these sermon series, because we're going to have to deal with the day of the Lord over and over again. Like I was like, okay, God, you got to help me get there. you got to help me understand. So I want to help you today because it can be confusing. But Because my questions are, how could the prophets all be speaking, use the same terminology, but be referring to a bunch of different days? And how, in, how, how are the, these days are hundreds of years apart? How can they be talking about the same day? But here's the point. When we try to view the day of the Lord as a particular day, we're missing the whole point. Okay? We're missing the whole point. Instead, when the, the prophets speak of the day of the Lord, they're using this as a term for moments and situations in which God brings judgment and or restoration. Typically, one group the day of the Lord is a day in which one group will receive uh, judgment and oftentimes another group will receive restoration or sometimes it's, a, it's judgment that's followed by restoration for the same group of people. And when the Israelites begin to look at their history, if you know the history of the Israelites, it all started with a man named Abram. Abram is the, the father of the nation of Israel. Um, he gets later his name changed to Abraham. But God comes to this man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, just 12 chapters into the Bible. He comes to this man and he says, follow me, leave your land. Let's read it. I'll quit phrasing it in my own language. Let's see. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, again, later gets named Abraham, go from your land, leave your daddy's house, your relatives, all that, all your security, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Listen to this part. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You see that part at the end? That's an important part for the ancient Israelites. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. God presents the idea that he will protect Israel and that God's blessing and cursing on other nations would be poured out depending on how Israel was treated. Now, that, gets, that progresses from that point. And so at just a few generations after Abraham, God's people find themselves in Egypt. And they're living in Egypt because that's the place where they can find food because there was a famine in the land. But a few pharaohs change hands and God's people begin to be fruitful and multiply like COVID was going on or something. There's babies everywhere. And, and, but there, there's all this going on. And, and, and the, the, this new pharaoh comes to power and he's a little unsure. He's a little worried that, that this, this new people are going to take over. And so he begins to put them down. He actually begins to enslave the Israelites. What's he doing? He's treating them with contempt. He puts them to work. And then he, they're still, they're, 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 they're just multiplying like crazy. God's blessing their families. And the Pharaoh actually begins to, to put to death uh, the, the baby boys when they're born. That's the edict that comes forward from Pharaoh is don't let any more baby boys be born. Let them have women, but don't let them have boys because that means an army. So what do we see? We see a group of people, the Egyptians, now treating Israel with contempt. But also we see something that's bigger going on. And the Davises are talking about this on Wednesday nights right now um, in our foundations group that meets here on Wednesday on this side of the sanctuary. They're talking about this idea of the image of God 
And that that was God's original intent, that man would bear the image. And what happens is when nations begin to take the image of God and mar it, put it down, pretend like it's not important that we were all made in the image of God, it's almost immediately a recipe for God's judgment. And you see that all throughout Babylon. Babylon, who kind of becomes the poster boy for uh, in the Bible for this idea of, of just demeaning the image of God, treating the poor badly and, and uh, killing young children or killing babies. Like all of this is going on. And what is that doing? It's, it's not taking the image of God seriously. When, we, when, when nations begin to do that, God's judgment begins to come. And that's what we see in Egypt. God's judgment is coming. And so the first day of the Lord that we see is God calls a man named Moses to lead God's people out of Egypt. He brings restoration to one people and what we often think is that, and then he sends 10 plagues on Egypt. If you're familiar with it, they're ones as bad as the next. It's awful. But oftentimes we think that the 10 plagues were just to restore God's people, just to get them out of there. No, the 10 plagues were also judgment on a people who had abandoned the image of God and were mistreating God's people. Like that's what was going on. The 10 plagues, they weren't just an exit strategy. They were judgment on Egypt. And so God's people are now headed out. So that was that was a day of the Lord, right? And then um, God's people, they kind of wander in the desert. And uh, the Israelites, by the time of Joel's writing, clearly don't think about the 40 years uh, because they wander in the desert for 40 years and God allowed them to and even forced them to as a form of punishment. But then they get back to God's, they get back to the promised land that God had promised to Abraham and, and God pours out his blessing on them again. And they go into the land and all these Canaanite uh, the land of Canaan, all the tribes that live around there, guess what they were doing? The same thing Egypt was doing. They were sacrificing babies. They were mistreating the poor. They were doing all these things that abandoned the image of God. And the Israelites come in and God's judgment is poured out on the people of Canaan. Yes, God gives the land to the Israelites, but a big part of it was judgment on the others. And so the Israelites are now, so by the time Joel was writing this, and again, we don't, we don't really know when Joel wrote this, uh, so this is being preached at all three campuses this, uh, this whole month, and me and Andy, John, and Alan got in a text message battle about when the book of Joel was written because we all disagreed on it, but then we agreed to disagree because it doesn't matter, <laughs> okay? All right, um, but this is, what, what we have is that by the time Joel was writing this, whenever it happened, the Israelites have this, seem to have this idea that God's judgment is for those outside the city and the nation of Israel. They've seen God pour out his judgment on Egypt. They've seen God pour out his judgment on the, lands of, on the land of Canaan and all the tribes there that he gave them their land. And they're like, hey, if you, anybody from Texas? Some of y'all afraid to raise your hand. Uh, there's a phrase, don't mess with Texas. Right? That's the idea of what's going on with Israel right now. Hey, don't mess with us. You mess with us, you get the big guns. Like God's judgment will come on you, you mess with us. What the Israelites were ignoring is that the day of the Lord was not just for those outside their walls. And Joel has to help them see that. Joel's trying to help them see, stop pointing your finger outside the city. God's judgment is here for you. Right? And that's what we see, these, these locusts. Um, I said there's all those locusts, right? And if you're not familiar with locusts, just think like, I don't know, little like grasshopper looking bugs that eat everything. Like a teenage boy eat everything, right? Like just a lot 
high metabolism. They're eating everything, and, and that's what's going on. And so Joel's writing this, and he says, look, y'all think that God's judgment is only for those that aren't Israel? Those locusts that just ate all your food, God sent those because y'all are dumb too. Like, that's his point. Like, you're being dumb. God sent this judgment on you. You're not, you're not exempt from the judgment of God just because you're his people. And he begins to help them see this. And you've got to recognize, again, you think locusts, oh, that would stink. They ate all the food. They ate all the apple trees, right? That would stink. I like apples. But what is also going on is he used locusts. Anybody remember locusts in the Bible? I remember a point like with the ten plagues that went on Egypt? You might remember this. That, so there's ten plagues on Egypt. The last one was really bad. They, uh, the, an angel of the Lord killed all the firstborn in Egypt. That was a bad one. Back up one. You know what happened in Egypt? Locusts everywhere. Like that's supposed to trigger our, it triggered them when Joel said, you remember how God sent locusts on Egypt? Why do you think we had locusts here? For the same reason, this is God's judgment coming on us. And this would have probably ticked off the Israelites to even hear that God, just like God was mad at Egypt, now God is frustrated with you. And God's using the same form of, of, of judgment as he did on Egypt. This would have, this would have man, it, like they were Egypt. That was the point. And so Joel is calling the Israelites to acknowledge you too are unworthy. This, this, this judgment is coming because we are messed up, not because of somebody outside the city. And so I'm glad that that has no direct application to the church today, aren't you? Because church people never point their finger out to the world outside of us and like want to call down God's judgment on other people. I'm glad that this passage doesn't apply to your pastor. I'm glad I don't struggle with sin and deserving of God's judgment. Aren't you? Let's go on to point number two. Church, if I could say anything, let me remind you as Joel did the people of God. When it comes to your worth and what you bring to the table, you bring nothing more to the table than anybody else in this community. In the eyes of God. Like you, we, your pastor is just as sinful as anybody else around here. Go find the nastiest sinner that lives in a five mile radius. Sit them next to me. I'm just as sinful. And the, 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 I think we've got to recognize that. Because I've seen men for a long time, and there's churches everywhere whose fingers are pointed out their windows at people in their neighborhood and going, God, that's, that's a sinner out there. Bring judgment on our city. Bring judgment on our nation. Bring judgment on these other nations. Church, when the church will begin to recognize that we are sinners first and foremost and that we are deserving of God's judgment and our fingers will stop pointing out the window and start pointing right back in a mirror back at ourselves then the lost people that you're sick of and you want God to bring judgment on they'll start coming in here and getting their life right and then we won't have to point a finger anymore you see this because they're going to see that, man, that, those people that meet at Lindsay Lane East, there's something different about them, man. Like I work with a guy and he don't judge me because I slipped up and said a cuss word. Like he don't judge me because he knows of what I watch or what I listen to or whatever. 
Like he just loves me for me. That's the church we need to be. And we're, we're, we're doing that. But let's keep doing that. <laughs> because I believe that all those, that, that's, that's what God has called us to do and to be. To recognize the same thing that Joel was teaching them. We are all deserving of God's judgment. One of the worst mistakes we can make is to think that because your name is on this church roll or because you sit on these beautiful khaki chairs once a week that you're somehow better than everybody else out there. That's a lie from Satan. And your pastor can struggle with it just like y'all can. I can watch the news and go, good night, Lord, act, do something. But I've got to recognize I'm a sinner too. And I deserve God's, I deserve the locusts in my life. After Joel gets them there, he helps them see that these locusts, it's not some coincidence. It's not some just random act. It's the judgment of God on them. He their natural tendency is to ask a question. When Kelly and I bought our first house, it's 980 square feet. And it had four, had, what, it had one pear tree and three apple trees. And that was in the little selling point, you know, like on the website or whatever. I was like, sweet. I like apples. I could do, this is going to be good. Like, we're gonna, I'm going to set up a stand you know, at the end of the road, like, I'm going to make some change. I'm going to have some out. I'm going to do this. And so the first seat, we bought it in, not in the, you know, produce season. By the time it comes kind of time around and we start seeing some apples and we're like, ah, oh, they're budding. This is going to be good, right? What we recognize is that, well, the pear tree actually was okay. It had just overgrown, like it had busted all out. And so just the pears weren't growing well because it, it hadn't been taken care of. The apple trees had some sort of fungus that was growing on the trees, and all the apples came out funky. And so if I, now my deal, I just went down to the, the Piggly Wiggly and just bought apples the next time I needed them. I didn't ask the question. I just let it go. Right? But if you were really bound and determined to go, now I want those apples, what are you going to ask? If this disease is here, I'm going to ask the question, what can I do to fix it? And that's what's going on. Joel has just shown them that God has poured out his judgment. They're, these locusts, these are real locusts that they're experiencing in the land. And Joel's saying, you know why those are there? Those are there because God's judging you. And so the natural response would be, well, tell us how we can fix it. And that's where Joel goes next. Point number two, God desires real repentance. What Joel begins to do is he takes the imagery of this locust swarm uh, he's got, there are locusts who are swarming and eating the trees. He begins to talk about a, a, a ramped up version of God's judgment that could come if Israel doesn't do something. But instead of locusts, it's soldiers. And instead of them being in swarms, they're in armies. And instead of destroying the trees, they're destroying the nation. And Joel begins to talk about that. There's a, there's a shift in the intensity in chapter 2. And again, I would love to read all 14 verses, but I barely made it through reading the first 14. So I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to skip down to 10 through 14. That's what Joel says. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the ram's horn in Zion, another name for Jerusalem, 
Sound the alarm on the holy mountain. Let all the residents of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. In fact, it is near. The day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, like the dawn spreading over the mountains, a great and strong people appears, such as never existed in ages past and never will again in all the generations to come. A fire devours in front of them, and behind them a flame blazes. The land in front of them is beautiful. It's like the Garden of Eden, but behind them it's a disaster, like a desert wasteland. There is no escape from them. And then from after verse from verse 4 on, he's going into just some great poetic detail to talk about this attacking people and the damage that they're leaving behind. But then he ends this way in verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The sky shakes. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars cease their shining. The Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army. His camp is very large. Those who carry out the command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. And he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may return and relent and leave a blessing behind him so that you can offer grain offering and drink offering to the Lord your God. So it's about as dismal, if not more, than the first 14 verses of the book. He paints this dismal picture, uh, this future, that if you continue in sin, you continue in what you're, what, the ways that you're sinning, your lack of love for God, um, this is what's going to happen. And then he calls them to repent. And repentance is a, is a Bible term that means to turn around, right? So if you're going in the wrong direction, you stop and you go in the opposite direction. And so Israel, by this point... And, Joel doesn't give us a lot of what their sins are, but Israel was heading down a self-serving, idol-worshiping path, and they didn't put God first in their hearts. And Joel was calling them to stop right where they were and to turn around and follow God instead of the sins that they were committing. But notice why he told them to repent. Y'all, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Why did God tell, why did Joel tell them to repent? He says, yes, you don't want to be destroyed. <laughs> but he also said that God is good. He quotes Exodus 34, 6 through 7, which if you're not, from, if you're not a Old Testament Bible you know, reader quite often, you, you may miss that. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is this moment after Moses leads God's people out of, out of, out of Egypt and, and they're almost to the promised land. They stop at Mount Sinai and, and God communes with Moses. And there's a point in which God passes by Moses. If you're familiar with the story, this is it. Verse 6, the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed this, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth. And he continues, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children, the grandchildren, to the third and fourth generation. So Joel is calling God's people to repent. He says, return to the Lord. Why? Because God is compassionate. Return to the Lord. Why? Because God is gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and truth. Joel simply wants Israel to understand what they have not understood for generations before. And that is that God is worth following. And so... 
when we talk about repentance, real repentance, Joel's helping the Israelites see, and I believe he's helping us see, that real repentance recognizes who God is. Real repentance recognizes who God is. We talk about this a lot as, as a couple, right? Like we're raising a six and an eight-year-old, okay? And here's the deal. I don't want to... Sometimes I can, I can put rules in place in my house simply to try to get my kids to obey me, right? Like I can make my threats. I got my punishments. I got my rules. You break the rules. Here's the punishment, right? And I can create little, little legalistic kids with that, right? But at some point, I want my kids to get to a point where they want to listen to me not because they don't want to get in trouble, but they want to listen to me because they love me. Right? And maybe I'm just now getting there with my parents at 35, <laughs> you know. Maybe it takes a while. But like, that's what I want. I want that for my kids, and that's what, that's what real obedience looks like. In the same way, you can't truly repent of some, if you're on the wrong path now, and your only fear is, I just don't, I just don't want destruction at the end of this. So you're not just turning from sin, you're turning to someone, and it's God. You need to recognize that real repentance recognizes who God is. But real repentance also has a lot to do with us. Let me reread just uh, verse 13 from Joel 2. He says, tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. Now, if that sounds weird, like I thought about just ripping my shirt, but then I'd have to have a shirt under here. And it's kind of hot sometimes up here preaching, so... Anyway, and it'll be awkward if I didn't. All right, here we go. Um, but it had become a custom in Israel by this point. It had become a custom in Israel that when something bad was happening to you, when you were going through something difficult, you would tear your clothes, typically in front of people, like you wanted people to know. And then you would sit in ashes. You'd, you know, you'd sit down in your front yard in a pile of ashes with your shirt ripped, and you would look really, really sad. And you would just sit out there for days. And the goal was to let your neighbors know that life stunk for you right then, but also to let God know, hey, man, can you do something about this? Like, that was the point, asking God to change the situation. But here, what does the Lord say through Joel? Just because you tore your clothes doesn't mean you repented. Israel, repentance involves your heart. Can you imagine? There, you know that there were people who were sitting out in ashes going, man, I hope this works. Like they, they were tearing their clothes out of tradition. They were tearing their, tearing their clothes because they wanted God to act, but it wasn't true repentance. And I believe to even today in the lives of believers, repentance is way underutilized. When we recognize that we are in, the need, in need of God's mercy because of the sin that we're in, we need to repent of that sin that trips us up. We need to recognize who we're repenting to, who we're turning to, but we also need to recognize that repentance is not just conviction. And y'all, I've seen it in my life, in my own life. And I've talked to people. I've had, I've preached sermons before that were, golly, that were just really hard. Those really hard to hear messages were like, I don't want to preach them either. And like, I've had people tell me at the door, hey man, appreciate that message. Stomped all over my toes. Thanks, man. And like, I'm, I always appreciate that. But like, I also want to say, well, what are you going to do with it? Right, because just because you leave here feeling bad doesn't mean you've repented, right? Does that make sense? 
I feel like there's a misconception in our hearts and minds that if, man, if the preacher will just convict me of my sin, then I'll be good with God. No, that's not the point. The point is for you to repent of the sin that you're convicted of. I have two kids, six and eight. I've already said that. I have a son who likes to hit his sister. You know what I'm talking about? In the car. I don't know what it is about the car. The car makes kids crazy. So we're riding out down the road. My son reaches over and smacks his sister. What do I say? I say something. I don't know. <laughs> Depends. But there's some sort of punishment typically for that. All right? Elsie Joe's crying. I start doling out punishments. Guess what happens? Repentance. Fake repentance, but repentance. Daddy, I, she, I, didn't, I didn't mean to. My, my hand slipped. You know, there's always something. Or even if they own it, it's, I'm sorry, Daddy. I should, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again, Daddy. And then we get a tenth of a mile down the road. And she's singing a song he doesn't like. And what does he do? Now let me ask you. Did my son really repent? No. He's sorry he got caught. Very different. Right? In the same way, we can stand before God's word and we can hear God's word and we can go, you know what, man, that's stomping all over me. Appreciate it, preacher. Thank you, Lord, for that. And we can walk out of here bound and determined to go to the same blame sin that we just got convicted of. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting passionate about it because I'm looking in a mirror. Like, I do the same thing. And it's unbelievable how, 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 how Satan, I'm going to tell you, it's Satan. If you leave here convicted and don't repent, that's Satan, not God. Satan has convinced you that feeling bad about your sin is good enough in God's eyes. Man, don't let that happen. May Lindsay Lynn East be, be known as a repentant people. So just because you, you feel bad about your sin doesn't mean you're repentant. And just because you told someone else about your sin. I've done that before. Like I'll be honest and transparent with somebody and tell them, hey man, I'm struggling with this. Whew, man, that feels better. And go do the same. Like that doesn't mean you've repented either. Repentance begins with a torn heart that is hurting because of the sin we've committed. Because we recognize that our sin is against a holy God. And I'm so thankful that Joel does not stop after chap- at the middle of chapter 2. Because after he talks about repentance, he talks about God's ultimate restoration. God's ultimate restoration. God's going to bring it. He begins to talk, in, in, as most of these prophets do, he talks about things here and now, and then he talks about things in the future. He talks about, hey, if y'all will repent right now, he says in verses 20 and 21, God will run off the invaders. Who were the invaders? Them goofy little grasshoppers. There's locusts, right? Like, if you'll repent, God will run off the invaders. He'll, he'll, remove, he'll, he'll deal with evil. He'll, he'll, he'll judge evil. Verses 22 through 26, God begins to say that uh, through Joel, if you'll repent, God will bring restoration to the land, right? Like y'all that were missing, missing, the, missing your, uh, your drink, right? The, the grapes are going to grow again. Hang in there. Those of you that love apples, the apples are going to grow. The figs are going to grow. All that, it's going to grow. Just repent and God's going to bring restoration to the land. And then the last thing in verse 27, he says, and I, and I God, will return my presence to my people. There's three things. He's going to judge evil, he's going to restore the land, and he's going to 
uh, bring his presence back among his people. And God, as he, uh, as he continues to talk about someday in the future, as again, as he did it with the, he, he talked about the locusts, and then Joel ramped it up a little bit, and then Joel talks about what repentance does for the locusts, but then he talks about the ramped up one. Speaking of this, this, this day, if you'll, if you will, if you'll repent, if we'll live lives of repentance, Joel 3, 1 through 16 talks about God addressing the violence and evil of all nations. He says, God, there's a day coming which God's going to bring all the nations, everybody on the earth, and he's going to bring them down in the valley. That's what he says, and he's going to judge them. Verses 1 through 16, and then 17 through 20, he talks about a restoration of creation, not just a restoration of, of the trees in Israel and, and the, the, the grapevines and not those things, but a restoration of creation itself in 17 through 21. And then actually at the end of 2, so you've got to flip back, flip back just a little bit, but the end of chapter 2, God shows them that not only am I gonna, is God going to restore his presence in the midst of these locusts, if you'll repent. But there is a day coming in which the Spirit of God, the presence of God, will not just be among His people, but it will be in them. And not just them, but all those who call on the name of the Lord from the furthest reaches of the nations. That's chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And 32 is a good one to mention here. That's what it says. Joel, Joel wants Israel to know that you know, they're not somehow untouchable, and they're not. But in 32, he talks about, look at this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised, among the survivor, survivors the Lord calls. This verse gets quoted generations later to talk about how we can trust in Jesus for our salvation. Those that call on the name of the Lord get to experience the presence of God in a way that Israel never did when they were even when the locusts left. Paul picks up on this, and he talks about if we will trust in Jesus as our Savior, call the name of the Lord, we will be saved and experience the presence of God that is very real here on the earth, and it happens when the Spirit of God indwells us, and that's what Joel is alluding to. He indwells all those who call on the name of the Lord. And so today, I ask, I tell you this, Right? God can deal with me on my sin. I'm going to have to suffer the consequences of my sin that I commit on a daily basis. There's some sins, some things that we do that God can, God can even bring discipline in our lives to correct us and to help us see things differently. But y'all, there is one judgment that I will not stand, that, that I can live peace knowing that this part of God's judgment does not involve me, and that's eternal separation from him. See, all of us who have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, uh, God may deal with me about some of my sin, and I may, have to, I may have to go through some difficult days, but I will not have to stand on that day worried about what Jesus is going to say about me because I've trusted in Him, and that is one judgment I won't stand in. And today, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, we're going to sing one more song here and say, and I'm going to stand down here on the front row. Come and talk to me and say, hey, man, I need to be saved. Because I don't want you to experience the judgment. I don't want you to have to live life knowing that that judgment is coming. You can know today for sure um, that you've been saved and the Spirit of God dwells in you. But I know a lot of us, you may already be a Christian. So my call to you is, are you pointing your finger out the window? If so, quit or go somewhere else. Because this church ain't going to be known for that. We're not going to be known as a people who are always talking about 
the people out there. We're going to be known as a people who are first and foremost willing to say, woe is me for I am a sinner. We want to fix what's in here. When we fix what's in here, they'll come here and then they'll get fixed by Jesus. So if you need to just call out to the Lord and ask for forgiveness for judgment that you're casting on other people in your life, do that during this time. If you need to repent of sin, if you've been leaving here convicted and thinking that's doing something today, you can come to this altar and voice a prayer of repentance or stay right where you are and voice a prayer of repentance. Whatever you need to do today, and I'm going to stand down here again to help you with whatever you need. We're going to sing this song after I pray. We're going to stand and we'll all sing. And then we can just respond however God leads you to, okay? I'm going to say a prayer. Father, we thank you, uh, God, that uh, that you have, God, put just just terrible, awful stories like the first part of Joel in there. God, because there's days where my life's not going great. And God, there's there's times where my life feels like a, it feels like a barren wasteland. Um, and God, sometimes I need to recognize that, uh, God, sometimes I brought that on myself because of my sin. Sometimes you're trying to teach me something in those times. But God, what I know is that repentance is what you desire. And God, I want to repent of my sins. And God, the restoration may not come immediately, but God, I know that at the end of my life, God, at the end of all things, God, that, that there is a full restoration for this, this person, me, because I've trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And today, God, I pray that if anybody hasn't, that they would, they would deal with that today. And uh, God, I pray that we'd all deal with you on the sinful issues of our hearts and would repent of the things we need to repent of, God, and, and we would be a gracious people here at Lindsay Lane East. We love you, God, and we thank you so much for Jesus who died for us, made a way for us to be with you. So in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Church, let's stand. You can respond however you need to.